This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman, our Director of Student Ministries. Keeping it moving in Genesis. That's right. And we're coming into our 201st episode. Feels good. Moving on toward 300. So when we get to 300, we'll plan something. That's so far away. <laughs> or maybe we'll do 250. Yeah. Or five years. Which comes first? Probably five years. Five years is going to come pretty, It's going to come sooner. That's kind of crazy. Uh, it depends on how good we are at this in the summer. Yeah, we, everybody, we may, we may be fired. <laughs> who, who knows? All right, so we are picking up. We're going to try. We're going to try to accomplish two chapters today, Genesis 28 and 29, continuing on in the life of Jacob, who we have already established is quite a schemer. He's deceptive. He's always doing whatever it takes to advantage himself even at the disadvantage of others, and he has shown a, a strong interest in the birthright, in the blessing, and being able to carry on the Abrahamic covenant that has worked through Abraham, then to his father Isaac, and now it looks like he is going to be the one who receives that. So in our last episode, we talked about how Jacob dressed up and appeared as though he was Esau in order to steal the blessing from his father Isaac that was reserved for Esau. After that, his mother, Rebecca, heard that Esau was planning on killing him. And so to spare Jacob's life, she's like, you got to go out of here. We're, we're going to come up with an, ex- an excuse. We're going to send you off to my homeland. Because remember, Rebecca was found back where Abraham came from, the land of Haran. And so she's like, you go back to my homeland. It'll give you a reason to be away from Esau. Hopefully, he'll calm down and you won't be murdered. And so that's where we pick up at the beginning of Genesis 28, verse and, 1. And again, it's just another scheme by those two without Isaac even knowing. Correct. Like, like this, they're scheming, then they go to Isaac like, hey, we need this to happen. And he's just like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> can you, yeah, can you imagine being the dad here where like, this is real, they, they're a dysfunctional family. Like this, <laughs> this is bad. And not even telling him, hey, like Esau's planning on killing him. Like, intervene. Talk to your boy. Like, there's none of that. We'll just involve him in the original conversation. It's not like a difficult task. (laughs) Yeah, they're dysfunctional, for sure. So verse 1, it says, Then Isaac called Jacob. So they've they've had their powwow. Rebecca came to Isaac, and it says, Oh, we should send him away to go get a, a wife. And Isaac's like, Well, that's what my dad did for me. Great idea. So Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. Says, You must not take a wife from among the Canaanite women. And so... We talked about this already when this happened for Isaac and Abraham sent the servant away. Like he didn't want them marrying Canaanite women. This isn't a racial thing. It's a cultural thing. Like their, their practices of worship were child sacrifice. Their practice of worship involved orgies. They were very, very backward morally. And so he wanted Jacob and Abraham wanted Isaac to have a wife that was taken from a more cultured advanced civilization. So he says, arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, 
and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So this gets into the incest conversation. What do you have for us, Will? I got nothing. That's <laughs> I wanted to ask that question to you. So I really don't know what the answer is. Um, elsewhere in the Bible, it very expressly condemns incestuous relationships. So the Bible is not pro-incest, just like it's not pro-polygamy, but you do find some of that in the earlier generations of Genesis. Maybe that's why humanity is so screwed up now. <laughs> just started from the bottom. <laughs> right? So <clears throat> you're going to take, get a wife for him from one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So Isaac then gives a blessing over Jacob. And remember, he's old, advanced in years. He's blind. You get the sense that he's kind of feeling like he's on his deathbed, even though he's going to live a long time. But he wants to get this blessing out. He says, God Almighty bless you. And remember, the last thing that Jacob has done is just deceive his father, and yet here the father is giving the blessing. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And so thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob and Esau's mother. And it kind of gets to the point that, yeah, Isaac can give Jacob the birthright, but he can't really give him the Abrahamic blessing. Mm -hmm. Like he's putting this out there and he's still very hopeful, like may God actually give this to you and we'll see that soon. But he's still saying like, hey, the birthright was in my court, but this blessing is fully in God's choose. Yeah. And so when Jacob goes and kind of deceives his way and steals it from Esau, what you don't have is Isaac saying, well, I'm not paying attention to that. He sees that God sovereignly has carried through the, the, the conversation that was first given to Rebekah, that the older will serve the younger. And so now Isaac's not fighting it. He sees God's sovereignty as engineering it to where Jacob is getting the birthright and the blessing. And so finally, you notice in verse 4, he says, May he, God, give the blessing of Abraham to you. So Isaac's no longer fighting this, even though this is the son who just deceived him. He recognizes that God has, in a sense, overruled his desire. God's not going to be thwarted. So verse 6, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please his father Isaac, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. So this is kind of crazy because one of the things that Abraham was very, very emphatic about is I don't want my son of promise to marry a Canaanite woman. Like if, if our line has to do with preserving life, this is a culture that actually kills their children. So Abraham found it important enough to send away for a bride for Isaac. But then here you have Isaac, whose wife was found at Padan Aram, that doesn't see it as important to share with the one he thinks is going to get the blessing, which is Esau. So Esau has taken wives from among the Canaanites, and he's just now finding out you shouldn't do that, mm. which shows Isaac messed up, right? Or, or is he just giving in finally? Like Esau is clearly not going to be God's guy, so why would I make him mine? 
But even when Isaac thought that Esau was going to be oh, the true. guy, I guess remember? he didn't send him back home. He married the two Hittite Canaanite women, mm-hmm. and okay. it says that they became like a real problem for Rebecca and Isaac. They did not get along with their daughters-in-law. Well, Esau had never heard that you're not supposed to marry the Canaanites. Yeah, he's like, what? This is news to me after yeah. two other wives? <laughs> yeah, thanks. That, thanks, that would have been helpful. So now here he is taking a third wife, which is like you know doubling down on all the mess. But again, what does that show you about Esau's heart? He still wants it. He Well, either he wants the blessing or he's got a heart that's driven toward obedience. Like mm-hmm. he wants to he wants to please the father. He wants, oh, dad, you, you wanted us not to marry Canaanite women? Well, okay, well, even though I already have to. <laughs> from here on out, no more. Yeah, all the wives from here on out won't be Canaanite. And so you see in Esau, again, like we talked about in the last couple of episodes, he does the right thing. He's the he's the kid that wants to please. He you know he he hates God. He's not interested so much in the blessing, but man, he wants hmm. he wants people to think that he's good. He wants he wants the worldly accolades, but he's not interested in the promises of heaven, which is just again fascinating. That the blessing falls to the scoundrel who, who loves the promise. the promise, not the good. The goody two shoes, or I wouldn't call it Esau a goody two shoes, but you know what I mean. The one who's yeah, his you know, behavior to seems to match a hero more so than Jacob. Completely. Whereas and Jacob's kind of like an anti-hero in this part, big time. Like he's doing all this stuff, and you're like, I don't think this is the guy, but he is. <laughs> That's like the story of Genesis. It's like every single person where it's like God saying. Oh, this is going to be, you're like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think I don't that's like the this guy, guy too much. I don't think that's the guy. So then we get to this very famous passage. Jacob is on his way. He's going toward Haran. And it says, Jacob left Beersheba. So it's that the southernmost point of Israel. And he's heading toward Haran, which is way to the northeast um, and like northern Iraq, modern day. And it says he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord. So from prior to this point, Jacob has not had you know, the personal encounter with God. All of the talk about blessing and who's going to get the birthright and everything else has come through mom or dad. And so here, for the first time, you have him dreaming. He looks up. He sees the Lord at the top of this ladder. And this is what God says, because this is going to be familiar. Here comes the Abrahamic covenant that now God is bestowing on Jacob. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. Does this sound familiar? And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, here's the big promise, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised. And that would be like a pretty amazing promise. Like God has just said, no matter what you do, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to abandon you until I have fulfilled my promise. Which, if you're Jacob, 
and you really have faith and you can take that to the bank, it means that you're basically indestructible, <laughs> you know, in some sense. You can do the big things. You can, you can, you know, I mean, you're not going to put God to the test. Yeah. But if he calls you to do something and you believe him at his word, that means you can, you can attempt big things knowing, one, you haven't had any kids yet. And he's just promised you that the salvation of the world is going to come through your kids. So he is going to accomplish that. And then beyond that, like you have to survive long enough to have kids, but then he's also going to bring you back into the land. So no matter what you do until you reach the land again, God has this unfulfilled promise hanging out there, which should be a comfort and a safety for you. Yeah. You can imagine how long he's waited for this actual interaction. Cause we've talked about it before. Like, man, am I the child of promise? Is this mm-hmm. going to be me? Like my dad's talked about it. I heard grandpa had this great encounter with God. I've heard all these men in my families have just been encountering this God who says he's going to do all of this for us. And it's going to be through us. And just wondering as a kid, like, was well, that going to be me? <laughs> like, is that my life? And then you're waiting here. And this is finally the moment when he's like, okay, he was talking about me. Yeah. And you got to think, like, because we come to the table with all these preconceived ideas of what the Messiah is going to look like. Well, Jacob's clearly not sinless. Well, where <laughs> would you have picked that up? Like, why does the Messiah have to be sinless? Or why do they have to be born of a virgin? Or what? Like, they don't have any of those concepts going yet. Those yeah. come to us from the prophets. You know, that the one who's going to defeat death will be sinless and, and have no guile and all of those kinds of things. So Jacob... You know, he's obviously the salvation is going to come through your descendants. So that's God saying, it's not you. You need to have some kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting. Like, what would that have done for you? It's just kind of fascinating. Especially if you're going to look for a wife. Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of a nerve wracking experience. Like, you're traveling, you're trying to do all this. You wonder what's going to happen on the other side. And then this, like, hits you mid journey. Like, mm-hmm. hey, this is all under control. Yeah. And a little bit of a spoiler alert. Like, all of the patriarchs have these long seasons where they have to wait. God gives the promise, and then there's this crazy long season that they have to wait. So Abraham, remember, God gives the promise, you're going to have lots of kids, I'm going to make a nation out of you. He and Sarah have to wait 25 years for God to fulfill that promise. Mm-hmm. Then you get to Isaac and Rebecca. They have to wait 20 years to have a kid, you know, waiting around through barrenness and prayer and everything else. Jacob has just gotten this promise from God. It's going to be 20 years and maybe a little bit more before Jacob makes his way back to the promised land because he gets brought into all these ordeals and <laughs> and chaos and schemes and everything else. But it'll be 20 years before God brings him back home with a family. One of the interesting things <clears throat> that we see here is, is God communicating. When Jacob falls into a dream, God opens his mind to see, he opens his, his imagination of faith to see that the heavenly realm interacts with the earthly realm, even though you can't see it with your eyes. That is a very, very big point of this ladder that's going on to heaven. Because Jacob is, what is what's Jacob's problem? Is Jacob is like, I need to accomplish this through my own scheming, through my own wisdom, through my own labors, my own efforts. And he goes to sleep and he has a dream where God's promising, no, 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 I'm going to do it. Yeah. And Jacob is allowed to see like, oh my goodness, look at all these angels that are coming up and down. And God is actually superintending over the affairs of man. He's not detached. Like he's actually engaged very actively. And the message to Jacob should have been like, hey, I got this. Yeah, relax. Relax a little bit. You don't have to scheme and own everything. Like I'm, I'm engaged here. And Jacob goes right past it, you know? 
he's going to continue on the, the the scheme train. Double down. But it, that really does make you wonder that if God could open spiritual eyes for you to where you got to see the spiritual realities around you, you would probably see some pretty dark things. You know, we don't we don't wage war against flesh and blood. The Bible tells us that there is a spiritual enemy and armies of them that are at war against God's causes on this world. So if, if you were able to see, you would see that for sure. But you would also see the armies of heaven engaged here. You would see the angels that are keeping watch over people and, and engineering things. It's like it reminds you of the the passage in, I think it's Second Kings 6 or wherever it is, where Elisha, the prophet, is staying with a guy who's freaking out because the armies are coming, and he's like, let me show you something. He takes him outside, and he opens his (laughs) eyes to be able to see the armies of angels that are out there. And if we could just see that, Mm -hmm. we would be a lot calmer. (laughs) You know, We wouldn't think, oh, my gosh, I've got to do it. It's up to me. It's all on us. Like, if you could see that God's not detached. You know, he's very much involved in the affairs of men. Even when we can't see it, his angels— and the courts of heaven are superintending everything that happens in this world and using it, turning it to good. Yeah, because that's one of the hardest things to wrap our minds around. You know, because our earthly circumstances so often just look like, hey, nothing's happening. If anything, bad things are like, yeah. all I can see I, are bad things. Yeah, like, it's not it, even yeah. a neutral world. It's like we're living somewhere's evil and it seems like evil's, you know, triumphant and it seems like God has just forgotten us and left us to deal with ourselves. Then, like you said, this story's coming down and being like, no. Yeah. Like, just because you can't see doesn't mean that it's not happening. There's there's all of this activity that God is still on the throne. And that is a weird byproduct of this vision that you don't really think about. Yeah, there's a there's a great... Stop. Great. <laughs> there's a great quote uh, by some theologian. I can't remember who it is offhand. But he said... If you went into the next room and you could see Christ, the Son of God, the one who controls all things, the Alpha and the Omega, and you could see him praying for you with intensity, you wouldn't fear the world's largest armies. And yet that's exactly what the Bible says he's doing for you right now, that he always ever lives to intercede for you. So heaven never stops engaging with the earth. God never takes his eye off you. And his plans, his sovereignty is never lifted from you, which should give us a lot of comfort and a lot of faith to face whatever comes our way. You want me to read? Yeah, I'm on I'm on pain meds, so everything feels like I just ran a marathon. <laughs> it's like I, he's running out of breath. It's true. So Will, All right, verse Will's going to step in for the fat guy. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took a stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, So that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you will give, all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Which is like, there's a couple of things at play here, which are just fascinating. If you go to any culture in the ancient world, 
wherever they would build a temple and say, oh, this is where God meets with man, it was almost certainly at the top of a pyramid or a ziggurat or a mountain. It was up high because God, you know, God wouldn't be bothered to come down to filthy yeah. earth. What Jacob does here when he anoints this rock that's on the ground is he's saying, this is where God comes to people. Huh. This is where God comes to meet with people. It was his pillow. Yeah, it was his pillow. But in a sense, like, think about what that means is every other religion of the world says God is is too high. He's too lofty for you. He's not going to come and get his knuckles dirty, you know. Jacob says, no, you you got a ladder. You send angel armies down here. You come and you get involved in the affairs of men. So here in this dirt where I've got my pillow, where I've been laying down, you know, this is the place where God, and this is the very gate of heaven mm. on the earth, the lowest parts of the earth, you know, it's, which is just fascinating for starters. But then I love how when Jacob turns back, God has said, hey, I'm going to do all this stuff for you. Like, I, I love you, Jacob. Like, this is my promise. Doesn't hinge on you. I'm all in for you. Unilaterally, I'm all in for you. I love how Jacob responds back to God. Notice this. If God will be with me and will keep me in the way I go and will give me bread and clothing to wear so that I come to my father's house in peace, then, yeah. then the Lord shall be my God. So it's like, God, if you, know, if you, if you prove yourself to me, I'll serve you. <laughs> and it's, it is totally upside down to what God des- deserves, right? He's God. He deserves you to follow him no matter what. He's your creator, sustainer, all of that. Like you shouldn't have a choice as to whether or not you serve him. Like he's God. And here's Jacob going, yeah, I'll take auditions. You know, if you prove yourself worthy of a God to follow, I'll follow you. (laughs) Which is what humanity has done ever since. Yeah, it does seem weird because you could look at it in a faithful sense. Mm -hmm. Like that he's trusting even like when... God walked through the carcasses like, hey, I'm going to handle this myself, and the only thing's going to be on me. Mm-hmm. So I could see Jacob in a little brighter light being like, hey, I know you're going to handle all this. But yeah, the words if and then are never a good good yeah. choice. <laughs> but I mean, it, but that's kind of how we are. Like even yeah. in evangelistic moments when you talk with somebody, it's like, let me show you what God can do for you. You know, and and people evaluate that like, is it good for me? Is, is this going to turn out good for me? Well, if it's good for me, then I'll take God. And it's like we God gives Himself so totally freely at great cost to get a bunch of screwballs, you yeah. know, messes, and He does it all unilaterally, pays it all, and in response we go, all right, well, if you make my life easy and you bless me and you promise me safety and you give me lots of money and food and stuff like, I'll follow you. And that's just the the natural tendency of man. Even at the end here, where he says, "If you know, of all that you give me, I'll give a tenth back to you." Yeah, and he's looking to get like given a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like that's a good deal. But this is Jacob. This is it's God. It's it's all people. It's God coming and saying, "I'm going to do it all. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to bring you salvation. It's all on me." In the important eternal sense of that. And then it's humanity going, yeah, but if, if you give me the temporal stuff, I'll, I'll follow you. You know, I'll, I'll take that spiritual stuff too. You know, the eternal matters. Yeah, that, that's kind of important. But just just give me food and make sure I get back home. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm hating the fact that we keep on ragging on Jacob, but he's the most like me that I've found so far in the book of Genesis. Yeah, how so? Keep going. Talk about how bad you are. Yeah, it's, not, it's, yeah, it's just the broad strokes that we're talking about with him. There's always like... There's always a little bit of haggling. There's always a little bit like, what can you do for me? There's always just a little bit like, I have to be a part of this. Like, 
I love the theology that God handles everything, but Will's pride can't handle that. Mm -hmm. Like, I have to have some part. Like, I even want 1%. Even if God gets 99, I want to say, like, oh, I want people to think, like, oh, he had some part in that. Mm -hmm. True. And, like, it's just fighting back that pride. I'm worthless in all the best ways, if that makes sense. Like, which is like very like, even talking about this is just reducing my stress levels being like, oh, I'm going to be okay. And it's not because I'm going to handle all of this because. Yeah, he knows. Yeah. So it's just like, oh, I hate that Jacob and I are looking in the eyes right now and (laughs) and getting it. But just this generation, like one of the ways that you can look, let's take last week's passage, right? Where Jacob has to dress up like Esau and pretend to be Esau to get the blessing. If there is anything that defines our cultural moment. (laughs) It is people pretending to be what they're not in order to get praise and, you know, likes and shares and everything else. Like we are constantly dressing ourselves up to be people that we're not on social media and everywhere else. So like we look at Jacob and we want we want to look down our nose and be like, you should just be yourself, man. You know, you've got. But no, we're, we're constantly trying to be someone else. We're yeah. constantly presenting to everyone else like, oh, no, I'm actually, I'm really Esau. You know, I've got my life together and I'm obedient. And, no, you're not. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're not. So in some sense, we're, we're all like Jacob. That's why, you know, it's, he's the God of Jacob. He's the God of Jacobs, which means he's the God of Wills and Sams. And <laughs> yeah, that, <laughs> that line hits harder now. Doesn't it? It's really, really wonderful. Um, so we just had that whole conversation where Jacob is, you know, at Bethel. He's on his way out of out of the promised land. God pauses there and says, hey, you're about to face a whole lot of unknown. I want to give you a picture of something that's reality. Heaven and earth are, are connected, and God is sending angels ascending and descending from the throne like I govern over the affairs of man. When you jump to the, and this is really cool, uh, Dr. Gage shared this with me when I saw it. I was like, that's amazing. When you jump to where Jesus is first introducing himself in the gospel. So uh, John chapter one, Jesus is going around. He's recruiting the apostles at this point. We're in verse 43. Listen, listen to how this goes. Verse 43, it says, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, Hey, we found him of whom Moses wrote about in the law, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael, who is the apostle Bartholomew, Bartholomew is kind of like the last name, Bartolmai is what it literally is, so it's Nathanael, son of Tolmai. But it's Bartholomew is the same as Nathanael, which is why you only hear Nathanael in the Gospel of John. Anyway, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Come and see. And so when Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed. What's Jacob's name? It's changed to what? Israel. Israel. So he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed. In other words, a descendant of Jacob, in whom there is no deceit. What does Jacob's name mean? Liar, supplanter, deceiver, right? And so here's, here's a son of Jacob in whom there is no deceit, right? So it's pointing you. It's saying, you're, you're not exactly like Jacob. You're not the schemer. You're not the one who's bad. And so Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip, I called you when you were under the fig tree. I saw you, which means what? 
I was looking at you when you didn't know I was looking at you. And Nathaniel's like, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And so Nathaniel was doing something under this fig tree that he didn't think anyone else could see. Hmm. But the God of heaven saw him. And the physical world, when it didn't look like any eyes were on him, Jesus says, I saw you when you were under the fig tree, which makes you think Nathaniel's pleading with God for something under that fig tree. Something's going on in life. He feels alone. He goes there privately, and he has it out with God. And now you have Jesus, you know, the Son of God, saying, I saw you. And that was enough to make Nathaniel go, oh, my gosh, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. You're the one who reigns in heaven and sees all things is the idea. And listen to how Jesus answers him because he's going back to the story of Jacob's ladder. Hear this. He says, because I said to you, I saw you under the victory, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And listen to what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So he quotes this picture of Jacob's ladder, right? Where God is coming to Jacob being like, I see what's going on in heaven. I'm actively involved in the affairs of man. Angels constantly coming up and down at my direction. I see all things. And Jacob, you should take comfort in that. Mm. So now you have Jesus who's telling Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, how in the world could that be? Like only God, only the heavenly realm could have seen me. There were no other people around. And Jesus is, is like, exactly. And I'm going to tell you this, you are going to see the heavens open like Jacob did. You Israelite in whom there is no deceit. You're going to see the heavens open. You're going to see the ladder. You're going to see the angel of God ascending and descending, not on Bethel, that's not the gate of God, but on the Son of Man. You want to know where God enters this world to care for his people? It's me. And so he becomes the destination of Jacob's ladder. He is the one who pierces into this world to superintend and to bring the heavenly care to the earthly darkness. It's just I love that. It was a cool, cool thing. And that's absolutely what Jesus is pointing at. Do you think there was a moment in time where Nathaniel actually saw that? Like a certain time? Or is this just like overall the ministry of Jesus will be one of God interacting with man? Or do you think like on the cross that that heaven was opened up? Or is there another time that... It's a good question. And so what the answer to that question is, when John writes the book of Revelation, you find all... And by the way, it uses the language, angels ascending, angels descending, Mm. angels ascending... And they're coming back and forth with all the messages and the seals and the trumpets and everything else. And so in the book of Revelation, it's a constant talk about angels ascending and descending when the Son of Man comes to reign over all things. That is going to be at least for sure a fulfillment where all of us will see this sight that was promised to Nathaniel. We will all see the angels ascending and descending with the the Son of Man when the heavens open, shining in all of his glory and coming on the white horse like it's pointing to that moment ultimately, mm. but I don't know if he'd have seen it okay. in other ways. Cool. Good question. Genesis 29. Genesis 29. Starting in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. All right, so we have a well. What, what's coming? A woman. A woman. A wedding. That's right. Boom. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. So the idea, I mean, really simple, is you have a well on the ground. They've dug this thing out. 
it goes down into you know natural fed waters that they scoop out of it and you have to put a stone over it because you don't want a dead bird falling in there and contaminating the water you don't want you know waste or filth or dust or whatever on the top of the water so it's keeping the water fresh and clean is the idea so massive boulder that rolls over and plugs the hole over the well and what we're going to see is that usually takes many men to move it. That's correct. Yeah, because in verse 4, Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. Yeah, so you don't want to take the, the idea is we're not going to roll the stone and leave the well uncovered for hours at a time. You wait for everybody from the, the surrounding area to come with their, with their flocks. And once everybody's here, then we'll roll the stone away and everybody will be able to feed their flocks and get water for whatever they have to do. And one of the other things I love about this passage, you remember when, when Abraham's servant shows up at the well and he's like, God, give me a sign. And he lays out a sign and it says, behold, right? As soon as he finished praying, here comes Rebecca walking forward. And the same is true for here. This guy just shows up after hundreds of miles, you know, journeying. And the moment that he's in this conversation about, oh, do you know Laban, son of Nahor? They're like, oh yeah, there's Rachel. Perfect timing. And it's just God's goodness to direct their steps. You know, you see the sovereignty of God all over the place in this. Yeah, and there's too many coincidences in the book of Genesis just to write off. Yeah. Like all of these stories kind of mimicking each other and pointing deeper. It's just like, obviously something bigger is going That's on. That's right. So verse nine says, while he, being Jacob, was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Really getting after mother's brother here. <laughs> then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. This is weird. Yeah. That, we'll get, can you imagine this? We're coming back to that. <laughs> Verse 12. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebecca's son. And she ran and told her father. So everyone seems like this is pretty normal for them. But reading it, I'm like... <laughs> Not feeling too cash. Yeah, you're just at the well. Some guy rolls a stone away, grabs you, kisses you, and starts crying. <laughs> like, how much more awkward could you get? But and she's jazzed about it. She's jazzed. Yeah, she's she's happy about this. And so what you kind of have to do is pull back because when you read it, it sounds like two minutes just happened, and it's really bizarre. Yeah, it's two sentences. <laughs> right. So, But more than this is... Um, you know, Jacob, for to his credit and why he's so emotional, is he's just lost everything. Like, let's let's remember that and give him a benefit of the doubt because he's he's gone away from his dad. He's not going with all the camels and the wealth to find a bride. Like, he doesn't have any servants with him. You know, his brother wants to kill him. He's kind of on the run. He's shows up, and God was kind enough to bring Rachel right out. And she, like her, like like Rebecca, is absolutely gorgeous and wonderful and he is just so overwhelmed with the goodness of god um that he kisses her and we don't know like and our we want to think romantically like he just like planted one on her and you know then starts weeping but we don't know if this is a, a greeting kiss like does he kiss her on the cheek like i'm so grateful to see somebody from my family yeah 
we tend to think, you know, yeah. passionate kiss, and then he starts crying. Like, all right, dude, we got to talk. I'm thinking <laughs> a kiss and the crying all starts in the same moment. You know, just yeah. just a real. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's probably right. But it's just he's so overwhelmed that God has led him through, and he's delivered him exactly to the person that his mother and father sent him to find. Yeah, you can imagine after God coming to you in that dream, everything starts to get a little more real. Mm-hmm. Like you're like, no, this this is the next step in this process. In order for me to get the land, in order for me to have the descendants, the first thing I need is a wife. Mm-hmm. And here she is just right away. Yeah, and you, you noticed how Jacob wins her, right? Did you, did you pick up on that? That strength? Well, not just the strength. The what muscle? Is, no. What does he do with that muscle? Uses it for her good, serves her. Uh-huh. He rolls the stone away. Ooh. You hear that? No. What other stones get rolled away? Get out of here. <laughs> You're looking at me with that smirk. So so he's rolling the stone away. So he goes to find a bride, and he rolls the stone away, which is the language of resurrection, right? So Jesus rolls the stone away to win a bride, to defeat death, and in addition, to give living water. So take that. Do with it what you will. I think it's kind of cool that are we when a bride he's rolling away the stone like that's are we judging them for shallow reasons to like each other right here? <laughs> no, I'm serious because like it does seem like he's purely just physically attracted to her. Mm-hmm. He sees her, loves her, and then he, all he really does in this moment is roll away a stone. Just <laughs> yeah, but you, I mean, you go back to the other direction, and it's when when Isaac's bride is found, it's like, will she water all my camels? That's you know? true. You know, here's 10 camels, 30 gallons of camel. You know, is she willing to do that? It's a pretty heroic feat. And so here you have Jacob who's performing alone, by the way. Remember, this is a stone that requires multiple people to move it. But he proves that he is strong enough on his own to roll away the stone and to to give water to Rachel's flock. So he, in some sense, is the Rebecca of this story. Hmm. He's the one proving himself worthy of Rachel because, by the way, Isaac's servant shows up, and he's got, remember, nose rings and necklaces. Yeah, he had that unfair advantage of gold. He's got all the wealth, and hey, my dad's doing great. Jacob shows up, and it's like, uh, (laughs) I got nothing. Yeah, this guy seems like a liar. He's talking about everything he has back at home, but he's got nothing with him. Yeah, which makes you wonder, like, why didn't Isaac send him with some kind of dowry? He doesn't have anything to give to Laban. He doesn't have anything to offer up. He's As you will see, he has to end up volunteering his work to pay. Like, you get the sense that even though Isaac's like, you know, God bless you, and I hope you get the Abrahamic covenant, and, you know, I'm praying for you, like, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> when, when you get to Laban, you know, I, I, hope, I hope you find a bride that's, that's cheap, because I, you're not getting anything from me. Yeah, again, Isaac, short-sighted with his sons. Yeah. Esau at first with the Canaanite women, then this one, it seems like, yeah, because this situation's going to get messy. Because in verse 13, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Okay, again, kissing as a greeting. Yeah, so there you have the kissing. But before you start thinking Laban's a good guy, let me just let me just pop that balloon. Remember Laban was there when Abraham's servant came to find a bride for Isaac. He was there with his father, and they were negotiating the bride price. So Laban's like, I know this family's loaded. I know this family's loaded. So he comes out and, oh, Jacob, wonderful. He'd be a great husband, you know, and he's all about it. Yeah, because he wants what he wants. Mm -hmm. Jacob told Laban all these things, and verse 14 says, And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. 
and he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? And is that normal? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he's, he's there for a while. Like, if you're, if you're a slave in the household, you do work, and they take care of you with lodging and food, but you don't, you're not, your labors paid, aren't yeah. worth anything. You know, you're not getting paid in addition to that. So what Laban is saying is like you're being treated not like a member of the family. You're out serving me every day. You don't you don't belong to my household. Like you're either a slave or I should be paying you. Okay, so that's even a little different than modern day, where it's like because you're family, you should be helping each other out. Like I shouldn't ask for wages, but that makes sense in this regard. Which is wild that Jacob hadn't tried to scheme some wages out of him. But it also shows you Jacob has his eyes on a prize. He, does, he wants to get ingrati- ingratiated to Laban because he adores Rachel. And so he's he's already kind of showing he's willing to do anything to get Rachel. Okay, because verse 16 says, Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel. So here you had like that's a weird expression that a lot of people wonder what that means. Yeah, her, her eyes were weak. Is that rude? Yeah, it's a rude comment. So it, it, some people have like thought, oh, she's cross-eyed or something like that. I don't, or it just means generally unattractive, which I think is closer to the truth. But to have weak eyes, it, it's the one of the first things you notice of somebody in terms of beauty. It's like you know, women and makeup. They're constantly looking to make their eyes look younger. Hmm. They're trying to get rid of bags. They're they're trying to make their their face look more vibrant, and vibrancy comes from the eyes. And so even the name Leah literally means exhausted. Hmm. And so I think it's all in all likelihood, like her face lives up to her name. She looks worn out. And so that the impression that you're to get from Leah is kind of the same impression that you're to get to, from Jacob. He's constantly scheming, constantly going, constantly trying to get blessing, constantly prove, trying to prove himself or maneuver. And so here you have Leah, who is the older of the two, who's exhausted. She's worn out. Her face reveals that she's worn out. Like if, if you know somebody who's totally worn out, where's the first place it shows? In her eyes. So she's got weak eyes. She looks haggard. But man, Rachel is absolutely beautiful, which means Leah has been churning away. She's working hard. She's She's worn out, but Rachel comes along, and she's got you know youth and vibrancy and beauty, and her eyes are gorgeous. And I think that's kind of more of the meaning that's going on here. Okay, because in verse 18, it says, Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man, so stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. The power of hope in that verse is one of my very favorite illustrations, and it's just true. Mm. You know, if because he knows what he's in store for, you know, seven years to get Rachel, what a deal. Like, I love her so much. I, you know, seven years is like, psh, that's it. It's the difference between, you know, I've used this analogy somewhere in the past before, but it's like if I told you, that you had to clean all the toilets on our church and school campus every day and you were going to get 50 cents a day, you would be like, I don't, I don't want to do that. This job's terrible. I hate it. But if I told you you're going to get you know, $20 million for cleaning the toilets 
all of a sudden the toilets don't seem that bad. You're not going to grumble about it because you're, you have a hope hmm. that this is going to be worth it. This is going to pay off in the end. And the same is true. How much more true is that for us that we're not, we're not looking at a Rachel. We're not looking at a $20 million payday. We're looking at the infinite eternal treasures and inheritance of heaven that we're in store for. And therefore all of the, the temporal suffering and the, the need to persevere through hard things all of, a, all of a sudden becomes like, oh, you want me to toil on this earth for 80 years with that hope? No problem. You know, Jacob could do it for seven for Rachel. How much more could we do it for 70 mm. for Christ? You know, because that's, that's our reward. And, and that hope is powerful medicine to make you endure and not, not only endure, but to thrive through drudgery and hard things. Yeah, like that's first from Paul. This light and momentary affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory. That's it. Like Paul's not, I mean, Paul of all people, you know, yeah. we talked about him being shipwrecked on Easter. You know, <laughs> it's not this guy who's casually being like, oh, everything's trivial. Yeah. No, he's like saying no in comparison. That's right. And so for Jacob, in comparison to having Rachel finally, it's like, I'll yep. work. Yeah, that's that's the, the other one he says where all these present sufferings are not even worthy to be compared with what we're in store for, with the glory that's coming in Christ. And that's the idea. Seven years for her, like she's my treasure. She's my delight. It's, it goes by like nothing. And one of the things that's really fascinating here is just like I, I looked back in this era and a typical laborer, an experienced shepherd, could have gotten 250 shekels for seven years of labor. That would have been what they could have expected on the low end. And the, the typical bride price was 50 shekels of silver. And so when, when Jacob gives seven years of labor, it's like five times more than what a typical bride price would have been at that time. So he's, he is way overpaying, but he wants to make this offer to Laban like irresistible. Like, give me your daughter. I don't have any money now, but I'm going to give you 250 shekels worth of labor for something that normally would be 50 shekels. And again, aren't you just mad at Isaac? Like, send him with 50 shekels. <laughs> Yeah, you got a like ton you of have money. shekels. Yeah, You'll remember, be fine. You just totally took advantage of Abimelech and all the people of Gerar. You're yeah. loaded to the hilt, and he sends them with nothing. He could have just fit those in his pockets. Like not even just bringing an extra horse, just That's fifty true. shekels. Man, it is a weird thing that Isaac sends him away. Kind of all right. Good luck. Bye bye. Yeah, like see you later. I guess. Yeah. No. No flock. And no knowing servants, who Laban no is. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, you know what I'm heading into, Dad. Yeah. No pep talk. No like watch out for this. Like. <laughs> And this is Rebecca's brother. Like, she for sure knows. Yeah, Uncle Laban just taking advantage of him here. Yeah. In verse 21, and we see the seven years goes by in biblical time. We end one verse and we end the seven years. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered. What does that mean? I think that's sex, right? Yeah, that's sex. Yeah, it's a real casual way. It's kind of gross. Yeah. <laughs> Give me my wife that I may go into her. Yeah, because usually the Bible goes with like, I want to know her, Yeah, which sounds a little cleaner. Yeah, can you imagine saying that to Tom? Stop, <laughs> what? <laughs> my gosh. <laughs> I mean, really, yeah, but it adds to like how like wild. Yeah, before. Wildly just like, frank they are. Yeah, like when Give I me my wife. sat down for the engagement with Tom and Beth, that's what I should have <laughs> led with. <laughs> well, I hope no one else listens to this. <laughs> This is definitely staying in. I know, and I have no control over the editing <laughs> process. Verse 22. 
So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, here we go, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. What's happening here? What's happening to Jacob is, first off, he is getting his just rewards for everything that he did. And that's going to be one of these uh, divine kind of poetic justice here. Remember, what did Jacob do to get the blessing? Well, he pretended to be his older brother so that from the father he could get the blessing. But he took on someone else's identity and deceived his way into getting the blessing. And so now what is happening to him? He's being deceived. He has an older daughter Mm. who's taking on the image quote unquote, the image of the younger daughter, the identity of the younger daughter to get the blessing of Jacob's hand in marriage. And so Leah is conniving her way into the blessing every bit as much as Jacob was conniving his way into the blessing. And the two connivers are going to be the ones that lead to the messianic line. Esau's out and Rachel's out. You know, it's going to be Jacob and Leah that bring forth the line of the Messiah, which is wild, wild. But then behind that is the more obvious, like, wait, what? How does that happen? Yeah, walk <laughs> you know? us through an ancient wedding ceremony that you could end up somewhere. All right. So, what happens in an ancient ceremony? Like, the ceremony stuff actually happens way earlier in the ancient world than, like, you know, now it's like you stand at an altar, you look at each other, you take vows, you, you have a little bit of a party, then you drive to your hotel room or whatever. In the ancient world, the wedding and all the vows happen way ahead of time. Okay. Then with the wedding, you have a, a wedding feast. It's a party. It goes on for a while. And during that time, until the wedding night when she is unveiled, she is actually totally covered. Mm-hmm. So, and especially in the ancient world, remember when we talked about veils and how strict they were about women having head coverings and facial coverings. So there's a number of things that, Leah has going for her, which it makes it the story still crazy, but it's dark. Jacob is no doubt drunk and she's got the veil. So when they go into inner chambers, which is going to be dark at night, she's got those thing, things going for her. She's veiled. He's drunk. It's dark. So it's not as complex as we think it is. It's just, just happens to be dark. The yeah. veil covers up her weak eyes. Like everything that would be her trademark is not there. Correct. Uh-huh. And so, and I mean, you, you got to imagine, you know, being sisters, they probably look remotely similar, maybe. Same build, you know, they're not same twins. Kind of yeah. And you saw Lot. Remember, Lot's daughters were able to take advantage of him for being drunk. And so, you know, this is the next one of these stories that happens in Scripture where in the morning it's like, oh, my goodness. So apparently there was no small talk. There was no, you know, <laughs> you know, you were consummating a wedding. It was quite a, a ritualistic ordeal in the ancient world that, capped off a wedding all right so back to verse 23 it says but in the evening does, does, that, does that work for you yeah yeah because i had some real questions for sam about this like just how does that happen like it's just not our world so it's kind of hard to step into all of that but you can imagine in this day and age if there's wine and there's no light and <laughs> there's mm-hmm. trickery and, and you can see obviously laban's involved mm-hmm. you know this is like you were talking very similar to jacob and esau where rebecca was the one who was conniving and Everyone's kind of a pawn in this scheme, and it seems like Leah's just a pawn in Laban's scheme to make all of this happen. Yeah. Leah emerges. I, I named my daughter Leah because I love, I know, <laughs> Will's looking at me Stop shaking that. his head. <laughs> because I love this character so much, and there's there's something about her that makes her really sympathetic, because you got to imagine she's older than Rachel, 
and no suitors have come calling for her. Rachel's beautiful. You know, everybody wants Rachel. You know, Jacob will pay 250 shekels worth of labor for her. Never thought, oh, Leah, Leah's nice too. You know, like she's been overlooked and she is so desperate, so unlikely to get married, so ugly, whatever the case might be, that the dad says the only way we're going to be able to pawn you off on anyone mm. is through lying. You have to pretend to be someone else to get them to love you. You're that gross. And so Le- imagine Leah walking through this because we tend to focus on Jacob being deceived, but imagine what that's doing to her when she's having to pretend to put on the veil. And you, we don't know where Rachel is this night. Like she's got to be a willing accomplice in this unless they have her like, you know, tied down somewhere. Like you're not allowed to show yourself. So imagine all the heartbreak that's going around. You have Rachel that for seven years has been like my Jacob, my Jacob, my Jacob any day now. And then she has to step aside and Leah has to recognize I am so unlovely and unlovable that I've got to pretend and lie my way into a marriage. I've got to trick someone into marrying me. I'm that repulsive. Um, and the whole while it's God loves her. Yeah. You know, very reminiscent of Sarah in that regard. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. always just feels like she's, you know, a second class citizen, always mm-hmm. overlooked, always forgotten about. But each moment in these stories, we're going to see like, no, God sees you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. And it makes it beautiful because Jacob despises her. Yeah. And and will for a long time. That eventually gets redeemed too. But out of the gate, she has a very, very difficult marriage and a very loveless marriage. Leah, Leah's got to find her love and satisfaction in the Lord because no one else, not her dad, mm-hmm. not her husband, and in cases we'll see not her kids at points, like she lives a life that has to be, that has to find its fulfillment in the love of God because she's not getting love any from anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it just goes to show that in all of this, like no one's getting out unscathed in yeah. all these stories. So when they sin, when they deceive, man, it it tears people down. Every, nobody walks away without wounding here. You know, if, if they had they been righteous, God could have worked this whole story out in a much more peaceful, probably less interesting <laughs> way to read about it. But every time they do something that's deceitful, it ends up harming and wounding people around them. Yeah, and that just goes to show that, like, God comes to us in our sin and will still use sinful people mm-hmm. doing sinful things to fulfill his purposes, but it doesn't just negate yeah, the harm. Yeah, there's still consequences of your sin. God can redeem it and turn it for good, but yeah. there's consequences of sin, always. Book of Genesis. Yep. All right, so verse 23, but in the evening again he took his daughter Leah and brought her Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. Kind of a weird parenthetical statement in the middle of this. Because verse 25 yeah, says, that servant will become a concubine to Jacob as well. So he'll have children with Zilpah. Verse 25 says, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, like, what a, what a casual. such an understatement yeah, verse right there. casual reveal by the Bible. Yeah. I wonder if Jacob was like, behold. Yeah, <laughs> behold, it's Leah. Different reaction. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Honest question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Laban look who, said. look who's asking. Yeah. Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Yeah, we've had seven years to talk about that. 
<laughs> yeah, like <laughs> hey, maybe you could have mentioned that any time in the past seven years. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other awesome return for serving me another seven years. Oof. Yeah, how does that sound? Does your hope and start to dwindle? Yeah. So here's, uh, yeah, because now you're doing it. You've already paid your dues. You paid your dues. So you're still willing to, he's still willing to do it for Rachel, but now it's, this has to be a hard, harder seven years for sure. And um, you see what Laban is doing to Jacob is totally Jacob-esque. Yeah. You know, it's like they're both, it, this becomes a battle of the schemers. That's going to be the rest of his time with Laban is who can out scheme the other one. And verse 28 says, Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. And again, we miss all of the work that he'd done. You know, seven years fast forwards quickly, so it's easy just to be like, oh, Jacob did it again and not understand the consequences of it. Yeah. Here's here's another question for you. So we talked about this, I think, last week. Like, why did Isaac, when he realized that Jacob deceived him, why did Isaac not go, I'm not, no, I'm not giving you the blessing. Yeah, I like, take it all back. You lied like, wrong. to me. But he did that because he recognized God's sovereignty in it, and he didn't want to challenge it. Because I think at that moment, he was like, wow, God is really behind this. I'm, I'm not going to overrule my blessing. Why, why do you think Jacob didn't go, no, I'm not marrying Leah. I worked for Rachel. I demand Rachel. I honestly don't know. I think, like, I know the appropriate answer that you're looking for. Which is? is that same thing that you know he sees that God's working oh yeah, through like, this. I, th- I think Jacob looks at it and says, if if I if God is going to honor what Isaac did through my deceit by giving me the blessing, then I'd feel like I can like, look at Leah and say, "You did the same exact thing to me that I did to Esau. I'm holding them to their covenant. Now I feel like God is holding me to this covenant." And so he does not go back on his marriage vow to Leah which would have devastated her because then she would no longer be virgin and everything else. But Jacob, in one of the stand-up things, if you can call it a stand-up thing, agrees to stay married to her and to provide for her and care for her. And he's a terrible husband for years to come. But he doesn't walk away from her or abandon her. And I think it's because he did the same thing to his brother and his dad. Yeah, that makes sense. Because sometimes in the Bible's curtness, we forget like, I just feel like Jacob's not much of a self-examiner in this lifetime. So he just doesn't seem to be one that's tracking along, but I guess he is. Um, Because Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. And again, Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. And in verse 30, it says, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Mm -hmm. And so you have Bilhah, who's also going to be a concubine to Jacob, and he'll have children with all four. Uh, but Rachel, far and away, is his beloved wife. He loved her and saw everyone else as kind of like a, a hassle, you know, a, a hang-along. And uh, Leah, in particular, you will see, really has to fight that need to be loved by Jacob and to find her identity in the love of Jacob, which she fights for, fights for, fight, fights for, and just can't earn. She can never be good enough. So we're going to pause there, and we're going to jump into to verse 31 going into next week as, as Leah starts having children, because that's going to be more of the focus of the next chapter. But I do want to steal one thing from the next chapter. So as Leah 
is despised by Jacob. He sees her like you don't you didn't deserve what I'm giving you. You you don't deserve to be my wife. You cheated your way here. And even though he honors taking care of her and giving all the legal requirements, his heart is never given to her. And it says when the Lord saw that Leah was hated and that word hated there um it's the same word that's used when it says that God hated Esau. Mm. Um, it's 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 sane. It's it's mean. You're definitely not loved um, covenantally. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, in other words, Jacob might be married to her, but he's not loving her. It says he opened her womb, and so you get this sense that when God sees the one who's left out, the one who's discarded, the one who's forgotten or overlooked that that actually triggers his heart. And like every other matriarch that we ever find goes through this season of barrenness. And it's like the Lord came to Leah and said, you've had your barrenness. You, you have gone long enough in your suffering and just out of pure kindness and grace, he opens her womb and brings her life right away. Wow. And he is going to kind of come next to her as a husband. And this whole thing, like one of the things that we're to pull away from this, it's really just wisdom and it's a beautiful gospel application here is you have Jacob who's trying to be something he's not in order to get the blessing of God and the blessing of his father. And here you have Leah who's trying to be something she's not in order to win the affections of a man. And there's something that's just deep down inside of us where, you know, it's, it's that famous old, you know, you hear preachers talk about this all the time that everybody wants to be loved and everybody wants to be known, but you usually have to choose one or the other. Because if you really know me, in reality, I'm, I'm Leah, you know, I'm Jacob, I'm a mess, I'm, I'm unlovely. And if you got to see the real me, I'm not sure you'd give me the blessing. I'm not sure that you would draw near and love me. And so I have to pretend to be something I'm not in order to get loved. That's what Leah had to do for Jacob. It's what Jacob had to do for his father, Isaac. But when you come before the father, you know, you can take the veil off. He's not fooled. You, you can do away with the disguises and all the pretense and the ways that you have to, to pretend to be good enough because God sees you at your absolute worst. He knows the worst parts about you, and he delights over you. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, you see so much pain and dysfunction coming out of this particular story involving Jacob and his family because they're pretending to be something that they're not in order to win approval. And the gospel frees us from that. We get to come in our own identity and say, God, this is the mess I am. I need you. And I'm putting all of my hope in your promise, trusting like you showed me that you're the God who comes down. You're the God where heaven opens up and you're engaged in the affairs of man because you delight over us. You sing over us. You see us as the messy ones and you call yourself the God of Jacob. I don't have to pretend. That's who you are. And that is powerful. Yeah. That's powerful. And it's a hope and a truth that we all need to cling hold of. Um, but it makes me love these characters, Jacob and Leah, because we all got a little Jacob and Leah in us. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the Out of Water Podcast. I hope that you have a blessed week. Join us next week as we jump into Genesis chapter 30 and the birth of these children that are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. Really, really, really precious, beautiful truths coming up, and some very weird stories as well. As always. always. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome to Genesis. Have a great week. 
We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.